There's not much of an introduction this morning. We're just going to, for the most part, dive into the text with a bit of a running head start. Paul is in the midst of his second missionary journey. The crew, it's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and our author, Luke. And they're ministering presently in the city of Philippi. And as we saw last Sunday, their ministry in Philippi reminds us of a sobering reality when it comes to following Jesus. And that is the incredible cost that's often associated with being a Christian. We're told for the high crime of faithfulness to God and a willingness to do nothing but love people. Verses 22 through 24, Luke says that the multitude there in Philippi rose up together against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes, commanded for Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them and threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely, having received such a charge, we're told that he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Please don't forget, and this is so important, don't have any disillusionment. If God is working through your life in such a way that it is a threat to the clutches of darkness, The enemy will not sit passively by and allow your advance to proceed unimpeded. If you're doing good, friend, expect a counteroffensive to ensue. It's a promise. Now, after being stripped naked publicly there in the courtyard of Philippi, the magistrates tearing off their clothes, the humiliation associated with being presented bare to the population, Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. Beaten. Now the Hebrews limited such beatings to 40 minus one. The minus one was a token of grace. This is laid out in Deuteronomy 25 verse three. But the Romans, which is where Paul and Silas find themselves a Roman colony before Roman magistrates, the Romans had no such limitation to such beatings. Luke, who is an eyewitness, to the event, simply tells us that the beating, it laid many stripes on them, kind of presenting the idea that Luke loses track. And on a side note, according to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25, this would be the first of three such beatings the Apostle Paul would endure. Now, before we continue on into the text, there is kind of a a question At least it it presents itself when I read through the text. But you have four guys entering Philippi, four guys preaching the word, four guys in ministry, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke. And yet, why in the world is it Paul and Silas that are brought before the magistrates, beaten, many stripes laid onto them, thrown into prison, while apparently Timothy and Luke kind of skirt the the whole situation? They're not included. Now, many speculate that since Luke was a full-blown Gentile, he was a Gentile Christian, and Timothy, as we saw last Sunday, was a mix. He was half Jewish and half Hellenistic, that it could be these two men weren't automatically associated with the Jewish men, Paul and Silas. Don't forget that the accusation brought against them was that they, being Jews, exceedingly troubled our city. It's likely that Timothy and Luke, just by the way they looked, 
weren't associated with Paul and Silas just automatically. It may be that these two traveling companions, being young, being new to the experience, were maybe in some regards shielded by Paul and Silas, told to kind of drift into the background, allowing them to take the beating, sparing them the embarrassment. Either way, you have Paul and Silas here. They're bloodied and bruised and thrown into not just the prison, but the inner prison. Now, in the ancient world, prisons existed for a much different purpose than they do today. In Roman times, judges would not sentence a guilty offender to serve time incarcerated. Prisons only existed to be holding cells for either the accused awaiting trial or the condemned awaiting punishment. There was no crime that necessitated incarceration in the first century. Beyond that, even in the Mosaic law, we find no prescription of a penalty that included imprisonment. A guilty person, according to the law, was either required to make immediate restitution to the victim, or if the crime was too severe that restitution could not be made, they'd either be put to death or exiled, depending on the crime they had committed. No incarceration in the first century or even Jewish culture. The idea of a prison is a new development. Now, it should be pointed out that Roman prisons were often subterranean pits. Many times, nothing more. Archaeology seems to to confer with this assessment. Which means that as Paul and Silas are thrown into prison, they're placed into a cold, dark, filthy, poorly ventilated hole in the ground. And keep in mind, they're bruised, they're bloodied, they have open sores. They're not cared for. They're not given medical attention. They're taken in such a condition, naked, bleeding, bruised, bloody. And they're placed in the inner prison, an area only reserved for the most vile of criminals. Not only are they shackled against the wall, which was customary, but their feet, we're told, are placed in the stocks. Now, most of the time, prisoners, while their hands might have been uh, anchored to the wall, the chain would give them some flexibility and movement. It was to ensure they wouldn't escape. But the idea of them being placed into the stocks presents a different picture. Imagine, you have a naked, bloody, and bruised Paul and Silas, and this dark, cold, damp, filthy, rat-infested prison cell. Their arms are fastened to the wall. They're sitting on the floor and their ankles have been stretched to the max, placed, fastened in a stock, which means there's no mobility, there's no movement. They're sitting in their own excrement. It's barbaric. They're back up against this rock-faced, dirty wall. It's pitch dark. It's a painful dynamic. Their wounds not being cared for or looked after. Don't forget, and why are they there? They've just simply served the Lord. They've simply been obedient to Jesus. They've simply gone where he called and loved people in the way he had loved them. So they find themselves in this cell, in the darkness, hurting. In verse 25 were given their reaction. But at midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This word, but, in a literary sense, it indicates that Luke is trying to place the reaction of Paul and Silas in context to everything that had just happened to them. His point in doing this is to illustrate how abnormal it was that following a violent arrest without provocation, false accusations without reason, an unmerciful beating, and an unjust imprisonment as if they were criminals of the worst order, these men respond to these circumstances by praying and singing hymns to God. It's as though Luke is saying that A happened, and one always expects when A takes place for B to be the natural reaction, the natural result, but A happened, and B doesn't take place. Instead, something out of the ordinary, something bizarre, something strange occurs. You see, in their suffering, Paul and Silas, they resist the natural human reaction. They don't do what you would expect. (laughs) They don't do what you would do, right? I mean, if you're in their situation, there's a lot of reactions that would surface, right? Aside from praying and singing. For, For me, I can imagine the natural reaction would be to doubt their purpose, You know, that thought, what did we do wrong? Paul sees this vision. They travel from Troas to Philippi, the gospel going from Asia Minor to Europe. They're there. Clearly God has led them. And in this moment, they had to have thought, did we make a mistake? Did we screw up? Why would God be mad at us? Doubt a normal reaction to such circumstance. I can figure that they might have take pity on themselves. You know, woe is me. Here I am serving you, Jesus. And this is all I get. This is all I get in favor of it. Self-pity. <laughs> I can imagine you and I in the same situation, that complaining, you know, about being treated unfairly would be a natural reaction this is not fair. We didn't do anything wrong. I mean, me in the prison cell in this situation, I would have the tendency to point out that this is not how things should have gone. Thanks for nothing, Jesus. I can even see them growing angry over their current state of affairs. I mean, have you ever been in a situation totally unfair and you get angry about it? Angry at God? angry at the people that were accusing you or angry at the people that hurt you, crying out as the psalmist for vindication. See, these would all be natural reactions in this set of circumstances. B to the A. But this is not what we find, is it? We don't find them taking self-pity. We don't find them angry. We don't find them complaining. Instead, these men make a decision to rely on the God behind their circumstances by doing something important, by coming to him in prayer and the singing of hymns. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm gonna rely on God in the midst of my suffering. But practically, what does that look like? Well, we find it. 
They come to God in prayer and the singing of hymns. Now, the first thing Paul and Silas are doing in the darkness of their suffering is they're coming to God in what? In prayer. You see, in the moment of suffering, prayer is of vital importance for it is the mechanism by which Jesus is able to affect my mind and therefore influence my will. And that's important in such situations. Never forget prayer is not about convincing God he needs to be doing something. That's not what they're doing here. Instead, prayer is about aligning my heart with what God is presently doing. It's about trusting God. It's not about getting God on my side, on my page, but rather it's about surrendering my will to him and getting myself on his page. Okay, I'm here. Lord, I have this compulsion for all of these normal reactions, but I trust that that I'm in the pit because you led me here. So you gotta help align my heart with what you're doing. Give me a vision. Help me in the moment. Help me surrender these thoughts I'm having, these feelings I'm having. You know, prayer affords an individual the opportunity to allow what I know to be true to override what I might feel in the moment. That's why prayer is important. It it helps me place my present situation in context to much larger realities I know, but I might not be feeling. Things like God does love me. God is in control. God has a plan. Sometimes in prayer, I need God to align my heart with his will and remind me, like Romans 8.28 says, that all things indeed work together for the good. Even depressing prisons for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purposes. You see, prayer is important in the pit of despair because it helps me shift my focus off of my circumstances, the ones in front of me, and onto the God behind my circumstances. And when this happens, when you can do this, your perspective concerning your present situation will begin to change. You see, instead of escape from my prison, if I can align my heart with God, instead it should be a desire to endure, to persevere. And you know, if I can get to this point, where I can, in the moment of suffering, deny my my emotional capacity, my natural uh, instincts and reactions, and instead get my eyes on God and not my circumstance, when I can do that through prayer, an amazing thing happens, friend, when I can recognize and trust the sovereignty of God over what I'm facing, a great peace fills fills my life. You know, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, we're told to be anxious for nothing. Why? Because in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and what? Your mind through Christ Jesus. If you're suffering, if you find yourself in a pit, if you find yourself faced with a situation or a dynamic that's unfair, something that you see and you might in your own humanity complain about, take a step back and come to God in prayer. 
not asking God to do away with my situation or to free me from my circumstance, but God, allow me to focus in on your purposes and your will. Give me a heavenly perspective on my current muck, which then leads to another component. If you're suffering, I hope you realize that God does want to do more than simply affect your mind or influence your will. You know, it's easy for someone to say what I've just said and in many regards detach it from the pain we might experience. But Jesus wants to do more in your suffering than just change your mind or influence your will or your perspective. Jesus wants to do more than that in your suffering. You know, in in Luke 4, verses 18, Jesus said that he was sent to heal the brokenhearted, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's his promise. That's his mission. That's his focus. Jesus cares not just while you're in your prison, your mind. He cares about what you're feeling. It's not mind over matter or mind over emotions. It's mind and emotions. Those are the ministries Jesus cares about. You see, it shouldn't be understated that though Paul and Silas are able to gain a heavenly perspective on their earthly circumstances. In this moment, as they're chained to this wall and their feet are in the stocks, they were experiencing a real and physical pain. It's not as though in their prayer, their pain subsided. That's not true. A change in perspective wasn't a change in discomfort which is why aside from praying, what else do we see them doing? Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God. Understand, in the moment of suffering, worship is also of vital importance. For it is the mechanism by which Jesus is able to minister to a person's heart and therefore ease a person's pain. Hebrews 4 verse 16 exhorts us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus wants to help you in a very practical way. And while worship intends to exalt the name of God, that's the ultimate purpose behind worship. Isn't it true that the very act of singing praises to him ends up being the avenue by which Jesus is able to minister to the worshiper's heart? to the person hurting? Don't you find when you're in your personal prison that there is something that happens when I come to God and I sing? Over the last few years, researchers have conducted several studies in the attempts of trying to understand the biological benefits of singing. One article I read concluded that researchers are beginning to discover that singing is like an infusion of the perfect tranquilizer, the kind that both soothes your nerves and elevates your spirits. Now, while studies show that all singing has a biological effect, it would seem, according to research, that group singing yields the greatest impact. One researcher wrote, group singing, for those who have done it, is the most exhilarating and transformative of all. It takes something incredibly intimate 
a sound that begins inside of you, then shared with a room full of people only for it to come back as something even more thrilling, harmony. Now, for those of you concerned with the harmony component, according to a study conducted in 2005, group singing can produce satisfying and therapeutic sensations even when the sound produced by the vocal instrument is of mediocre quality. Thank goodness. Amen? Like, it's a good thing that the only prerequisite for the effects of our worship is that we make a joyful noise unto the Lord, not one on key. You see, studies reveal that when you sing, and for our purposes, worship, your brain experiences a surge of two different neurochemicals that yield, interestingly enough, two different results. First, known as the bonding or love hormone. When you sing, oxytocin boosts a person's sense of trust, togetherness. It reduces anxiety and stress. It promotes a feeling of happiness. This is what occurs as you're singing, as you're worshiping God, oxytocin is surging in your brain, giving you this sense of togetherness and trust. It's what's taking place biologically within you. Note, MDMA or ecstasy is a street jug that that produces the same result. Singing, in some regards, is euphoric, ecstatic. In addition to oxytocin, known scientifically as endogenous morphine or opioid, endorphins are also released in the brain. And these endorphins, as you're singing, do something else that's interesting. They inhibit the transmission of pain signals and yield a feeling of pleasure. I don't work out, but I read this in a book once. (laughs) That this is the same feeling that you get when you work out, like strenuous exercise. You go on a run, you're pushing yourself through the pain, and you get done, there's kind of this euphoric, this high. What it's doing is it's endorphins been released into your body, suppressing pain, which is why it's not till the next day you need to take Advil because you can't move. So it's suppressing pain and giving you this feeling of, of happiness, a good workout. I know nothing of it, but I'm just reading it. So biologically speaking, The act of worshiping God by singing praises to him not only boosts your spirit by releasing oxytocin into your brain, but as a result of this surge of endorphins, the suffering soul will physically and emotionally feel better. And you wonder why Christians sometimes describe a worship experience as a feeling of of being high. Once again, and this kind of ties in with the train of thought that we introduced last Sunday when we were discussing Lydia. But this is another reason that a spiritual life based primarily on the activity of worshiping God alone can be such a dangerous and misleading reality. Not only is it possible for a person to worship God without knowing God. We saw that with Lydia. She's down by the river praying and worshiping God, but she doesn't know the God she's worshiping, which is why Paul introduces her. She's described as a worshiper before her conversion. So it's possible to worship without knowing the God you're worshiping, but the same biological effects of worship, singing, group singing, 
are also independent of the same reality of knowing God. Sadly, because of our misguided emphasis of the worship experience, apart from the teaching of God's word, we have created a Christian culture today filled with what I will call worship junkies who are more interested literally in a hit of oxytocin and a surge of endorphins than they are in the actual exaltation of God. They come for the high, not to exalt the one on high. Well, Paul and Silas have been ministering for Jesus, which obviously led to their suffering. And as they're adjusting, aligning their, their will, their perspective, their mind with what God is doing, there did come a moment where it was now time for Jesus to minister to them. They were ministering for Jesus. It led to suffering. And now Jesus was gonna minister to them. And by coming to the Lord in prayer, they could adjust their will, but by singing, by spending time in worship, it was in this moment that God was able to minister to these men in a very tangible and practical way. As they sang to God, what happened? Obviously, there's a spiritual connection, something happening with their soul and the maker of their soul. But biologically, as they're singing these hymns to God, Paul and Silas, who are in pain, excruciating pain, suffering, chained to a wall and their feet in the stocks, they, they enjoy a boost of endorphins, which eased their pain, a surge of oxytocin, which helped them trust. It reduced their stress. It gave them a sense of love, the love of God, something they could experience in a real way. Please understand, the reason we gather to worship God through the singing of songs it's not just that we want to exalt God, but we want to give God an opportunity to minister to our hearts in addition to speaking to our minds through the teaching of his word. Now, this detail that the prisoners were listening to them is not an accident. I can imagine the sound coming from Paul and Silas's cell during this midnight hour had to have been the strangest thing any of them had ever heard. This is not what you do in prison. Pray and sing aloud in the middle of the night, by the way. You see, the reaction of Paul and Silas caught their attention, mainly because all the men in that prison had shared a similar plight of suffering. There's a reason they were all in prison. Now, I know many of you, are into the essentials oils craze. And while I have no interest in discussing the merits for or against alternative medicine, that's a pie I have no interest in stepping in. There is a truth about essential oils relevant to our topic. It's an inescapable reality that if you want lavender oil, you know, to reduce stress or inflammation, you know what you have to do first? You have to crush a lavender flower. Like if you want peppermint oil for digestive purposes, I guess that's why they give you a mint after you're done with a meal. I don't know. But if you want peppermint oil for 
irritable bowel. It's a truth that what, what has to come first? You have to crush a peppermint leaf. Lavender oil, you gotta crush that flower. Peppermint oil, you gotta crush the leaf. If you want rosemary oil to relieve your headache, you know, like Advil doesn't work. But if you want rosemary oil, you know what you have to do first? You have to crush down rosemary needles. You know, in the natural world, that which oozes from an item when it's crushed reveals the fundamental nature of the item. You don't crush a lavender flower and end up with rosemary oil. It just doesn't happen. And you know, the same reality exists in the spiritual world. Because the reaction of Paul and Silas to their suffering, or basically what oozed from their lives, from their crushing, was not normal, and in many ways unexpected, <laughs> it spawned a curiosity and it demanded a further explanation. I mean, how in the world could these men praise God when the normal reaction upon crushing would be to curse him? Like, I hope you understand your life demonstrates a greater manifestation of the supernatural power of God within you when your circumstances are difficult, as opposed to when everything is hunky-dory. The reason, friend, that the world listens with greater attention when a Christian is suffering is because they want to know if your reaction will be any different from their own. You see, if your reaction to suffering, this crushing, what oozes is like that, of Paul and Silas, not normal, the world is forced to ask themselves a question. Why? How is it that when that person suffers, what comes out of their life is so much different than when I suffer? Sure, when everything's great, our lives look the same. Everyone can enjoy the good time. But the Christian handles suffering so much different in the rest of the world. I need that. That's different. I crave that. Paul and Silas are crushed. But what oozed out of them was diffused throughout that prison. And you know what it was? It was not Paul and Silas. It was the indwelling spirit of the living God. The aroma that filled that prison was otherworldly, which would seem consistent, right? For in Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul would declare, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so when he's crushed, what oozed forth? More of Jesus. This morning, it would be wise for you to consider this. When you're thrown into the prison of despair, when you're surrounded by darkness, when you find yourself wounded, bleeding, bruised. When you're crushed, what aroma comes forth? What song do you sing? In his famous sermon, Songs in the Night, Charles Spurgeon said in a way that only he could, that any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but the skillful singer is the one who can sing and there is not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. 
They are not in the power of man. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all of the doors were opened, everyone's chains were loosed and the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing that the prison doors are open, supposing that the prisoners had fled, he drew his sword. It was about to kill himself, but Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. So here you have this scene, Paul and Silas, bleeding, bruised, wounded, worshiping and praying. It's midnight. And in the midst, as the prisoners are listening, there's a rumbling, a shaking. Suddenly, literally without any forewarning, this earthquake so shakes the prison that not only were all the doors opened, but everyone's chains were loose. And awaking from sleep, seeing that all the prisoners maybe had fled, Luke gives us another perspective. He shifts the scene ever so slightly by focusing on the keeper of the prison, a man who draws his sword and is ready to kill himself. You see, according to Roman law, if you allowed a prisoner to escape your custody, that prison guard would take upon himself what other punishment was due the prisoner that had escaped knowing that there's a prison full of probably the vilest of offenders, realizing the humiliation, the brutal execution that's coming before him, in a moment of desperation, this prison guard determines that it would be better for him to take his own life than suffer the the humiliation that awaited him. Consider the scene, right? You're Paul and Silas. You've been thrown into prison unjustly. You've done your part. You've maintained a godly character by praying, worshiping the Lord. And in the midst of this, an earthquake supernaturally opens your door and your chains fall off. Now, if you're in that moment, it would be very easy, right, for you to recognize the earthquake, door opening, and chains falling off your wrist, as clearly God's way, his providence, of giving you a way of escape. Thank goodness this is over. Peace, I'm out of here, right? That would be the normal reaction, to run. But not for Paul. You see, in the moment, as Paul probably looks out, right, left, wow, that was quite a worship service, you know what I mean? He sees something. He sees the jailer. He recognizes what's happening. And Paul does something amazing. He not just calls out with a loud voice. He not just pleads with the man to do himself no harm. But he stays in the prison. Like if it had been you and I, I think it's safe to say I would have thanked Jesus. Hallelujah. You provided deliverance and bolted. But not Paul. You know, I don't think these two men anticipated the earthquake. But their reaction here does tell me something very important. It tells me something important about their time in prayer. See, I'm convinced that as they're praying to God, and note, from their prayer comes their worship, that God had impressed upon their hearts an understanding 
that they were right where God wanted them. That God had impressed upon their hearts that there was a divine reason behind everything that had taken place. They might not have known it in the moment, but they had come to a term of accepting that all of their suffering had been part of a purpose and a larger plan. I'm convinced as Paul looks out and he sees the scene unfold, he couldn't help but recognize that the earthquake was not intended for their escape, but was instead designed to create an opportunity whereby they could minister to this Philippian jailer, who, by the way, was in desperate need of salvation. We're told, verse 29, upon hearing these words from Paul, do yourself no harm, we're all here. We're told he called for a light. I don't think that was a cigarette, but you can read into that. He calls for a light, and he runs in. And what does he do? He falls down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he asks, look, what must I do to be saved? If there was any doubt in Paul's mind as to the larger purpose presented behind his situation, it's clearly dispelled by this jailer's question. Here he is, what's his, qu- his question? It's not like, is everyone okay? What's the damage assessment? No, he comes and he falls down and he's tribbling and he says, what do I have to do to be saved? Like talk about an open door. Like that would be like you in, in your cubicle seeing the, the lady in the cubicle next to you and you kind of leaning over and saying, you okay? And they reply, what do I have to do to know Jesus? <laughs> well, that was easy. I'm an evangelist. Check that out. It's awesome. It's an open door. The man comes to Paul. Paul is, is traveling the world going to people to tell them about Jesus. And in this instance, The people are coming to him begging, you got to tell me, what do I have to do to be saved? Now, before we answer the question, it would be wise for us to define what it was that the man desired to be saved from. I'm convinced that this man understood that when mankind sinned against God, there were two results that naturally ensued. One man was immediately separated from God, and secondly, he was condemned to death eternally. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages or the penalty of sin is death. See, what this Philippian jailer desired to be saved from was the penalty his sin required of him so that he could be reconciled to God and experience life eternally with God. As such, his question, it revealed a profound understanding of his own inability to satisfy the penalty of his own sin. He recognized that he had a need he could not meet. Understand, salvation fundamentally demands, above anything else, that you come to the the recognizing, the awareness of your need to be saved. What must I do to be saved? The man And saying these words acknowledged his own condemnation, his own inability to save himself, and his desperate need of a savior. Now, before we look at Paul's response, I can't help but notice the factors that precipitated the man's question. Think of it for a moment. What was it? 
about Paul and Silas that drew this man? Like, I, I would assume that the way in which they had handled their beating had communicated volumes. I can reckon that their prayer meeting slash worship service in the middle of the night had also piqued his interest, smelling the aroma of their suffering. And yet, aside from these things, I think it is undeniable that what drew this man to Paul and Silas, it was one thing, and one thing alone. It was grace. Don't forget, this Philippian jailer, more than likely, had been personally responsible for so much of Paul and Silas' suffering. But not only had Paul and Silas refused to curse him as the instigator of their pain, but in his moment of greatest need, what do they do? You know, for most of us, we would have looked out that prison, see that jailer draw his sword and be like, get it. Serves you right. Better you than me. Go through with it, because I'm coming right behind. You know what I mean? Like, that would be the natural reaction. But no, Paul and Silas looked to this man, the man that had caused so much of their pain, and they're moved, right? They're moved to demonstrate an incredible, undeserved kindness. For not only did they refuse to escape from the prison, but they selflessly stayed preferring his life over their own. (laughs) It wasn't religion that drew this Philippian jailer to Paul and Silas. Nor was it rules or regulations or legalism. What drew this man to salvation was God's grace demonstrated through the grace shown him by Paul and Silas. It's the grace of God, friend, that leads a man to repentance if they had left, if they had treated this man like a religious person would or like the world would have, the result would have been his death, judgment, and torment. But they loved him and they cared for him. And so Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And when they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, he washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized, and when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. Now, we're gonna delve into this a little bit more next Sunday, but we should focus on how Paul answers. The man asks a simple question. What must I do to be saved? And Paul responds with a very simple but profound answer. The gospel message in a nutshell. You want to be saved? Simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be saved. In essence, notice, the man wants to know what must I do? And Paul responds with what? Not the activity of his hands, but the activity of his heart. Paul affirms that it will not be by what he does that will save him, but by rather what he believes. Sadly, it's in the the simplicity of Paul's answer here that many are left with kind of a fundamental misunderstanding as to the true nature of salvation. Let me try to explain it in a very simple way. In English, When I say, I believe you, 
What am I doing? I am affirming an intellectual belief in what you're saying. What you're saying. You come, you tell me something. I say, I believe you. Intellectually, I'm right there with you. However, when I say I believe in you, something different, right? I mean, yes, I'm not only affirming the same intellectual belief, but I'm going one step further by placing my confidence in you. It's not just your brain, it's your heart. Like understand, salvation is not solely found in a set of intellectual beliefs that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. Salvation demands that I carry these beliefs one step further by placing my confidence and my faith and my trust in the fact that Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin. It's not just believing Jesus that saves a man, but it's belief in Jesus that saves one from his sins. In the South, so many people fall prey to this because we know the Bible stories. Everyone does. Everyone's gone to church at some point or another in the South, the good old Bible Belt. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I believe in the good Lord Jesus Christ that he came and he lived and he died and he saved me from my sins and he rose three days later. And you're like, as he's got a heroin needle hanging out of his arm. Like, like everyone in the South has an understanding. I know that was kind of extreme, but you get the point. <laughs> you get the point. It's a belief. Many in the South are convinced I'm saved because I believe. But Jesus himself said that many will stand in judgment and will say what? Lord, Lord. And Jesus was I didn't know you. Because it's not believing, it's believing. And it's a radical difference, it's cliche, but it's true that many people will miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their brain to their heart. This man, he understood a need of salvation. He understood the only way he would ever be able to find reconciliation with God would be for these wages required by sin to first be satisfied by someone other than himself. And what does Paul do? He points the man to Jesus because the man needed a savior. And because Jesus was sinless, his death on the cross, payment for sin, not of his own making, could do what? It could satisfy the debt this Philippian jailer was unable to pay on his own. What must I do to be saved? Believe in Jesus that his payment on your behalf will suffice. Place your confidence and your faith and your resilience in that man and he alone, for he can save you from your sins. Makes sense, right? John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever does what? Believes. It's the same Greek word and him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, not by what you do, but by who you know and who you trust and who you rely on 
It's the one in whom your confidence is found. Is that you, friend? Or is it Jesus? That the world through him might be saved. And so, Father, with that word, we just want to just take a moment and let it settle in. 